Well, this is the ninth message now in a series entitled Burning Questions. We've been in the series for, uh, for a couple of months since the end of July. Really, July 22nd was when we started this series. And uh, some of you that may be here for the first time today or maybe last Sunday, you're wondering what's up with the question mark. Uh, it's called Burning Questions for a reason because we've had folks turning in their questions anonymously as it relates to marriage and relationships. And so now for two months, eight messages uh, up to today, uh, today being the ninth. We've been looking at those topics, sifting the questions, very, very good questions, by the way, very pointed questions and some very difficult questions. We've been sifting them through Scripture to see what the Bible has to say and answer to these burning questions, and so today is no different. Last Sunday, we looked at the topic of adultery. Uh, we had a few questions that were submitted, and uh, you know, the, sometimes the comment is made that why is the church silent about these things? And uh, you know, the, the church is called primarily to pronounce and to preach the gospel. That's what we're called to do: is to share the gospel week in and week out. However, the gospel message has implication for every area of life. Hopefully, after this uh, series is done. It won't be able to be said for a while that we have not addressed them. We've addressed some tough topics. And last Sunday with adultery, we looked at the key, the, the, uh, the takeaway uh, being that every single one of us, no matter who you are, how long you've been a believer, no matter where you are in relation to God, every single one of us is but one weak step away from the choice to commit adultery. Can God forgive that? Absolutely. Can God restore a marriage uh, where adultery has taken place? Absolutely he can. There are people all over this island and churches all over these islands, uh, people here in this church as well. There would be exhibit A that could say, we've been there, done that, and God has healed us, God has restored us, and our marriage is stronger today. We are evidence that God meets you where you are and that he deals with a repentant heart. People that can give testimony of that all day long. But we want to avoid that, if at all possible, to not have to walk through that valley. And so we dealt with adultery last week. Today, we're going to deal kind of with the part two, so to speak. I don't ever really typically share two-part messages, but today is kind of the unofficial part two uh, in looking at how to adultery-proof your marriage. And so looking at the questions that were submitted, let's take a look real quickly at the questions that were turned in some weeks ago that deal with adultery-proofing one's marriage. Let's go ahead and bring those up. First question, what boundaries should be put in place to protect yourself, to protect your spouse from the temptation of adultery? It's not a, it's not a sin to be tempted. Uh, it's what we do with that temptation that makes the difference. Question number two, as unfaithfulness becomes more prevalent, whether emotional or physical, what can couples do to affair-proof their marriage? And then the third question, how do I affair-proof my marriage? So those were questions that were submitted by, by you. Uh, a number of weeks ago, and that's what we're going to deal with this morning. Now, let me just say this, that I, I've addressed, or I've um, uh, named the, the title of this message, uh, Adultery Proofing Your Marriage, for a reason. You know, we have a tendency to really sugarcoat and to soften the edges of things that sometimes are very difficult to deal with, this being one of them. Uh, it is not an affair when a spouse chooses to be unfaithful physically to another to be involved sexually with one that's not their spouse. It is not an affair. That's a soft-edged, sugar-coated word to describe something that takes place that is absolutely devastating. It is adultery. The Scripture deals with it. Scripture talks about it. Again, God gives a remedy as to how to avoid it, also how to be healed from it, be forgiven from it. But it, is, it needs to be called what it is, and here's why. Because if we give adultery a soft edge, if we sugarcoat it, if we take away that hard edge and the harsh reality of what it is, we will be less likely to 
guard ourselves against it. Why? Because we guard ourselves against those things that are most dangerous. There's a reason that you have locks on your doors. There's a reason that you have uh, fences in your yard, gates that lock. There's a reason you take those steps, because you understand the harsh realities. I was reminded of this years ago, whenever, a long time ago, probably 20 years or so now ago, long before Susie and I were ever married, before we ever started dating, before I ever went off to seminary, I was uh, at home. Uh, in my parents' house, I was asleep upstairs, uh, their, their house. I was the only one home. And uh, I woke up. It was morning time. Sun was already coming in through the windows. And uh, after a full night's sleep, I woke up. And, uh, you know, you kind of rub your eyes. And, you know, and you wake up and kind of shake your head. And, and I looked. And there in my doorway, in the upstairs bedroom where I had been sleeping just five seconds before, all night long, I looked. And there was a man I had never met before standing in my doorway. Before I could realize what was going on, he said to me, he said, someone is breaking into your car. Now, I've just been sleeping all night long, right? Uh, I uh, wasn't thinking real clearly, and so I got up, got my shoes, and uh, made my, got dressed, got, you know, all that kind of stuff, so made my way on out, and, uh, and the guy is walking down the street at this point. And, uh, and, and so I, I, I thank him <laughs> for entering the house, <laughs> sneaking up to the upstairs where I was, opening the door, which is probably what woke me up. In my lack of clarity still, I thank him, and I got his name, and I won't tell you his name because you might be here and you need Jesus if that's the case. Um, and, uh, and ultimately later on, I realized what had taken place. This was the most odd thing in all the world, and it was a reminder to me, a harsh reminder, that there are a reason we lock things, there are a reason we protect things. And when we look at this, context, this con- uh, uh, topic today, in the context of Scripture, there's a reason. God gives us safeguards. There's a reason God calls us to be guarded against the sin of adultery. Why? Because of the tremendous cost that is associated with it. And what we're going to look at this morning is going to an- we're going to answer the questions that you have asked, and we're going to sift them through Scripture. Proverbs chapter 4 is where we're going to spend most of our time. So turn there with me, if you will. Proverbs chapter 4. That's where we're going to begin here in just a few moments. Now, whenever we look at this topic, we have to remember how God deals with sin throughout the pages of Scripture. If you go all the way back, for example, to the book of Genesis, the very first book that you read of in your Bible, in just chapter 4, we see that tragedy takes place early on in God's creation. It's the first murder that takes place in Genesis 4. The first murder at the hand really takes place in just the second generation of people. And before we get into Proverbs 4, let me just remind you of a simple truth. Genesis 4 reminds us of it. That sin will master you if you give it even one inch of space in your life. It was Cain and Abel that were there presenting their offerings to God in Genesis 4. God would show regard for Abel's offering, but Cain's offering he did not show regard for. He did not accept. Well, you remember the passage, Cain and Abel, sons of Adam and Eve. Cain would grow angry, would ultimately murder his own brother for jealousy. Before he would make that choice, however, God would visit Cain. And he would say in Genesis 4, verse 7, Cain, why is your countenance fallen? Do you not know that sin is crouching at your door and its desire is to overcome you, but you must master it? It's a picture of sin that we often lose sight of, that sin, even this moment, is crouching at your door. Doesn't matter how long you've known Christ, doesn't matter how solid your family is, doesn't matter how much money you've earned, what you drive, or who you know, or where you'll eat lunch today. Sin's desire is to overtake 
and to destroy your life, and it is its nature to do that. When we look at sexual sin specifically, sexual sin, unlike any other, is life-dominating. It will dominate your life. And what starts as a toehold will become a foothold. What is a foothold will evolve into a, a, a stronghold in your life that you can't break free from, but by the grace of God, and that stronghold will ultimately evolve into a stranglehold. And it will rob every ounce of joy and life that God desires you to have unless you deal with it. It's the nature of sin, especially sexual sin, to do that. But sexual sin is not just life dominating, but it is also, and I don't know a phrase how to say this. Let me just say it best I know way, best I know how. Sexual sin is also life redirecting. It not only will dominate your life and squeeze life as you've known it away from you, but sexual sin will set you on a course that you never intended in your life up to that point. Here's what I often hear, and in 20 years of ministry, I've had these conversations numerous times. Ten years of pastoral ministry, I've had these conversations many times. Whenever a person chooses to commit sexual sin, specifically the act of adultery, oftentimes what you hear, and I've had these conversations, is that they'll begin to rationalize that choice by making statements that they didn't even believe themselves just a short time before. And they'll say things like, well, you know, my husband and I were never really in love to begin with. Well, you wouldn't have made that statement just a couple of months before that adulterous encounter began. Well, you know, God never really wanted us to be married. We never should have got married all those years ago. You never would have made that statement before this all began. Well, God just wants me to be happy, and he has a will for my life, and I believe that God wanted me to chart a new course and to meet this person who's now my new soulmate. You never would have made that choice before. Why? Because it is the nature of sexual sin specifically, not just to dominate your life, but to redirect your life. And you will say things you never would have said to rationalize that choice to commit sin against your spouse and against God himself. Ron Herod is a Christian author. Uh, He's written uh, a book uh, about marriage as home improvement. And and, uh, this Christian author has put together the steps that I'll deal with real briefly because of the sake of time. I just want to lay out some steps of how an adulterous encounter really ultimately takes place. It It is a progression. And the enemy lurking at the door, crouching at the door of that unsuspecting victim, oftentimes, if they're not aware and if they're not guarded, as we're going to look at in a moment, will ultimately find themselves making choices to be unfaithful in ways they never would have expected they would have ever done in their lives. It often starts with an alertness. You know, whenever you were single, you were alert for those of you that are married. For those of you that are unmarried, you have to be careful and listen because either one day you will be married or you may face yourself under this temptation with a married person. And for the person who engages in an adulterous encounter, it often starts with an alertness. It is a sense of of, of an affection for a person that you meet, a person that you encounter maybe in the workplace, it may be in your uh, community, you may cross paths some way randomly, so to speak, and yet there is some form of an attraction, there's an alertness there that has to be dealt with at the very beginning. Oftentimes that alertness will begin to evolve into like flirtatious comments and things of that nature. But there is a chemistry that is there that if gone unchecked will begin to take its next step of progression often very rapidly. It begins with an alertness, but the second step into the, uh, looking at the anatomy of, a, of an adulterous encounter is that adu- alertness ultimately becomes basically unplanned meetings. But they're only unplanned by one party. The other orchestrates them the best that they can. It may be a person in the workplace and you make sure that y'all are at the same meetings at the same time, even though you're married. It may be a person at the gym and you know their schedule and you make sure you go there for your workout at the same time that they go, go on their days to work out. 
It may be some other seemingly innocent event that takes place, but you know the schedule and you know how to make sure that your paths intersect. And there in those planned meetings, there is an adulterous encounter that is beginning to spring forth without even being realized. The next step is that they are ultimately, from that alertness to planned meetings, are public lingering. You know, you, you just sort of linger and be sure you spend time together. It's not just about crossing paths, it's some chit-chat that takes place. And it may be innocent in and of itself, but there is a connection that's beginning to grow. And that public lingering evolves into private lingering. It's no longer making sure you cross paths at the gym. Now you're, oh, oh, you're done with your workout, you know what, I am too. No, you still got 30 minutes to go, but now you're done. Let me just walk, I'll, I'll walk out with you. Two minutes, three minutes, five minutes, ten minutes, you're just chit-chatting just a little bit and the enemy is just lurking at the door. You got your work done for the day. It's 5 o'clock, heading out. Oh, I notice you're finished. You know, let me just walk out with you. And before long, that private lingering ultimately begins to grow in and of itself. And it begins to be nurtured. Oftentimes in that private lingering, there is an emotional connection that takes place that ultimately cannot be denied. However, at that point, very few are willing to own up to it. That private lingering evolves into purposeful isolation. You are no longer just lingering. You are setting up and orchestrating events where you will be alone together. That is the next step of progression. You say, Brooks, this is foreign to me. Listen, you did all this when you were single, right? And it was fine because you're single. It's called pursuit, right? You knew that girl you wanted to, to, to have a date with. You knew where she went, and you made sure you crossed paths. And yes, it was awkward. And she would say, what are you doing here? Well, I, I always come here. And she's like, well, I'm getting my nails done. And you're like, oh, I <laughs> yeah, you did that. It was okay then. You know, you just, it was like part of the pursuit. It was fun. It was energetic. And you, and you don't ever want to lose that sense of, of, of energy and excitement in your marriage. But the danger is that now you're applying those same things that come so naturally that some may be so good at and you're pursuing someone that God never intended. They're another person's wife, another person's husband, or you're married and it's not the one you're pursuing. And yet you, encounter, you set up and you orchestrate to where now you are alone together. And typically at that point, it is not uncommon for there to be physical involvement, maybe hand-holding. It may be just gentle touches and caresses that seem so innocent, and yet things at that point are getting so far gone. The next step is affection. Rationalization runs rampant. People are beginning to speak into your life at that point. If you're a believer, hey, I've noticed you've been spending a lot of time with so-and-so. Oh, phew, that, but, man, just laugh it off. That, that, there's nothing. Man, we're just friends. I know their husband. I know their wife. You're, just, you're crazy. Ah, you silly little something, and you just brush it off. All the while, your heart's getting gone. And the last step is the physical act itself. See, there's a progression. And because it is the nature of an adulterous encounter, not to start in a bedroom, but to start somewhere so innocent, we are wise to be aware as to how it works and how to be guarded. Proverbs chapter 4, as we'll see here in just a moment, gives some very practical steps for us to take. And tracing through this passage the best that I can, I want us to just list a few things that we need to be guarded against so that we don't have to walk through the valley, though forgivable, but through the painful valley of adultery. Theologian F.B. Meyer has made the comment that no man suddenly becomes base. It doesn't happen 
with the event. It happens long before. Let me give you a takeaway before we dive into Proverbs chapter 4. And the takeaway is this. That adultery proofing your marriage requires constant guarding of every part of your body. Adultery proofing your marriage requires constant guarding, constant guarding, constant, constant guarding of every part of your body. And I'll explain as we move through this passage. Proverbs chapter 4, beginning in verse 20. It says, My son, give attention to my words. Verse 20. Incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your sight. Keep them in the midst of your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to all their whole body. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Let me just stop there for just a moment. In the Hebrew context there, the Hebrew phrasing of that passage, it says watch over. Or your, your translation that I really like a little bit better may say to guard to guard your heart with all diligence. In the Hebrew structure of that passage, that word guarding literally means to guard above all other things that you guard. In other words, to read it in that context, it would read like this, above all guarding, guard your heart, for from it flow the springs of life. You guard those things that are precious to you. There is a reason that you have your money in a bank that is able to guard those finances. There is a reason that you keep your money in certain accounts that you know is going to be guarded. There's a reason that you entrust your money only to those that are going to be faithful, those that are going to be able to handle it in a way that is right. Even above guarding your own money, the Bible says guard your heart. There's a reason you have doors on your, on your uh, locks on your doors and gates on your fences that can be barricaded. And why? Because your possess- possessions are important to you. Even above guarding your possessions, the Bible says to guard your heart. There's a reason that you keep those precious things under lock and key. There's a reason you put things in a safe that are of a significant value to you, whether uh, emotionally or whether actually in physical value. Why? Because the, the things carry value, so you protect them, you guard them. Even above guarding those things, the Bible says, guard your heart. Why? Because you can lose your money, you can lose your house, you can lose those things that are precious value. But if you lose your heart, verse 23 says, you lose your whole life. Guard your heart, it says, above all guarding. Guard your heart. Guard your heart. Why? Because out of your heart flows the springs of life, Proverbs says. Look at what it says, verse 24. So put away from you a deceitful mouth. Put devious lips far from you. Let your eyes look directly ahead. Let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Watch the path of your feet, and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right nor to the left. Turn your foot from evil. Chapter 5, verse 1, let me make this comment real quickly that whenever Solomon wrote the book of Proverbs, whenever he was writing this, he did not write. Now, chapter 5, verse 1, let me go have a Pop-Tart and a Pepsi, and I'll come back and begin working on chapter 5, verse 1. He didn't work that way. Chapter headings, chapter breaks were added centuries later. This is all one flow as it's being written. And so since the context, verse 1, chapter 5, My son, give attention to my wisdom, incline your ear to my understanding, that you may observe discretion, that your lips may reserve knowledge. Here it is, verse 3, For the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and smoother than oil is her speech. They're not picking on you ladies. The same thing is said to the men. And so there are things that are said here to guard. Because adultery proofing your marriage requires constant guarding of every part of your body. First of all, we must, number one, guard our eyes. You must guard your eyes. Look at what it says again in verse 20. 
My son, give attention to my words, incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your sight. Look down verse 25. Let your eyes look directly ahead. Let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Look over in chapter 6, two chapters further. Proverbs 4, 5, 6, and 7 all deal to some degree, at least in part, with adultery. Chapter 6, look down in verse 25, speaking of the adulteress. Again, it can be said in reverse, speaking to the woman in light of the adulterous man. It says, do not desire her beauty in your heart, nor let her catch you with her eyelids. You see, for men specifically, the, the, the first gate is the eye gate. God has created us. It's not a bad thing. It just needs, uh, it needs to be guarded and protected. God has created us as visual creatures. And for the person, for the marriage that will be guarded against adultery, the first step of guarding, so to speak, is going to be guarding the eyes. Two weeks ago, I dealt with the issue of pornography. I won't go through that. Uh, specifically, um, messages on our website. You can listen to it, and I hope you would if you weren't here on Sunday. But we talked about the issue of, of uh, pornography. Chuck Swindoll, longtime pastor, author, Christian speaker, radio, messages all worldwide practically, it seems. Been in ministry for centuries, I mean centuries, for decades. That's a, don't tell him I said that as though he knows me. Um, he's in good, good shape for 220. But Chuck Swindoll been in ministry for decades, for a long, long time. He made the comment, and this has stuck with me since I heard it probably a year ago. He made the comment that of all the people that he's counseled that have dealt with adultery, and you can imagine with a national audience, an international audience on the radio, this noted pastor and author, you can imagine the people he's counseled that have walked through adultery in the decades he's been in ministry. He said of the people that he has counseled in adultery, the men specifically, he cannot remember even in one single time where that adulterous decision was not preceded by some trafficking in pornography. Does it mean every person who views pornography will one day commit adultery? Doesn't mean that at all. It's not what was said. But looking at it from the reverse, for those who choose to commit adultery, at least in his experience, and I believe it would bear witness for most who study these things, that where adultery has taken place, it typically is preceded by, adultery, uh, by pornography. The eye is not guarded, and what comes through the eye ultimately makes its way throughout the remainder of your body. And so we have to be mindful to guard the eyes. Job said in Job 31 verse 1, he says, I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look upon a woman with lust in my heart. That was Job's covenant. He was the most righteous man alive at the time and it was stated in the book bearing his name. So how does that play out for us? Let me just say we have to learn to guard our eyes. Practically that means you learn to bounce your vision. You see guys, you can't help what you see you can't help the first look it's the length of that look and the second look that will get you david second samuel 11 could not help the fact that a woman who was beautiful in appearance chose to bathe on her roof just a short distance away for him to come out on his palace roof that day or that evening and to look over and to see her, God did not count that as sin against him. He couldn't control that. It was the length of the look and the second look that would get him and would send him beckoning for her to come to him that would ultimately unfold to and evolve into adultery and murder and a year of running from God. And so, guys, you've got to be careful about what enters through your eyes. Ladies, the same can be said for you as well. It's not just about pornography. It's about what we choose to look at and how we choose to look. 
And so you have to guard your eyes. What comes through the eyes eventually ends up making its way into our minds. So number two, you've got to learn to guard your mind. We must be people with adultery-proofed marriages who are guarding not just of our eyes, but of our minds as well. You don't have to turn here, but just listen to what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. It says, We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. Listen to this. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Is that passage written in the context of dealing with marriage? No, it's not. Can it apply to the context of marriage and personal purity? Absolutely. Taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. How does that translate? It translates this way. Never allow yourself to entertain any intimate thoughts of anyone other than your spouse. Your mind has to be corralled, and your mind and my mind has to have fences around it because if we push those fences over and if we let our minds run wild, it will begin to run into territory that God never designed. You say, Brooks, how innocent could the... I mean, come on, this is innocent in and of itself. Well, you've heard the old saying about, you know, reaping a thought and ultimately it evolves into a lifestyle. And many times, sin starts between the ears. When we consider a counterfeit to God's ideal, we see a temptation, the forbidden fruit that's out there before us, and we think to ourselves, now what would that be like? And that's where sin starts. It's in the consideration in the mind. Stories told of a little boy who went to his first wedding, and he was there with, with, his, uh, with his mom, you know, seeing a couple of uh, friends get married, and they were seeing the wedding unfold, and the, uh, uh, the, 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 the bride came down with, uh, you know, with her father, and the father gave her away, you know, and then the rest of the ceremony continues. The pastor's speaking, and songs are being sung. Well, then the couple, the, the bride and groom, come up to the platform, and they come over to this area where there's a big candle, right, in the middle. You've seen this. And they have two candles on either side, and on both sides of that big candle, those candles are burning. And so, as is often the case with a unity candle in a ceremony, the, 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 uh, the bride and groom come over and they, they light the unity candle in the center and then they extinguish the candles on either side, signifying that they have now broken out from their relationships with their mother and father to form a new family structure as a husband and wife. And so the mother out in the congregation looks down at her, her little boy and, and she says, with this teaching moment there, she says, son, do you know what that means when they blew out those two candles? And he said, um... Yeah, Mom, I do. And she said, what does it mean? And he said, it means that you can't have any more old flames. (laughs) That's that's pretty wise. (laughs) You've got to guard your mind. Adultery is progressive. Starts with the eyes. No one's ever committed adultery with someone they didn't lay eyes on makes its way to the mind. Times aren't so good at home. My husband and I are always arguing. Boy, that guy at work seems to be so sensitive. You know, it just seems to be a lot of stress. My wife doesn't understand how hard I work and how many hours I put in. Drop my dirty shoes on the front doorstep she gets on to me for making a mess she doesn't even realize the mud's on those shoes because I'm paying for the groceries we're eating she doesn't understand me all we do is fight funny how I just met that that old girlfriend from a couple of decades ago 
wonder what she's doing. And in the mind, <laughs> like fishing for catfish off a dock with a little float out there and you get that nibble. That's all she wrote. So you've got to guard your mind. You've got to corral those thoughts. Lest you be next. You guard your eyes. You guard your mind. You guard your lips. Look back in Proverbs chapter 4 again, verse 24. Proverbs 4, verse 24. Put away from you a deceitful mouth. Put devious lips far from you. You say, Brooks, how does, how does this apply? You have to be careful. We have to be careful how we speak to those of the opposite sex to whom we're not married. Ladies, there are some things that you could say to that fellow that you know that's so sensitive and caring. He'd be more than glad to listen to, but you don't have a business, any business sharing things that were only meant for your spouse to hear. The same in reverse. There are some issues of the heart that are of such a sensitive nature, that are so personal in nature, that you don't have any business sharing with someone that you're not married to. And ladies, you have to be very careful about this specifically because you, where men are wired more visually, you are wired by and large more emotionally. And where your husband may not be the type that is able and willing to sit and listen, and where your husband may not be sensitive to your needs, there will be other men out there who are, and you have to be careful, you have to be guarded, that you don't allow your lips to say things to them, to get the response that you long for at home, that you would get the, re the, the return that you long for from your own husband. You have to be very guarded that you don't use your lips to share things that need not be said but to your own spouse. And guys, let me just say this as well for us, is that in the same way, along that same vein, we have to be very careful how we speak to members of the opposite sex. There is no place for coarse joking or jesting. There is no place for flirtation because you never know who might be willing to take you up on what you say in a suggestive way. And you may be very surprised of the people that your flattery will get you anywhere. Very high-profile pastor was at a conference one time, and he made mention of a time early in his ministry when he learned that lesson. Thankfully, he stayed above the fray, and he didn't get involved. But there was a very attractive woman, he said, that came to him one time. He made a comment to her about the dress that she was wearing, and she said to him, flattery will get you everywhere with me. And it's the same for you. Jerry Jenkins has written a book entitled Hedges. I would recommend every single person in this building get that book. Jerry Jenkins, he's the, one of the authors that wrote the Left Behind series, wrote a book entitled Hedges. It's real easy to remember. Marriage that is important enough to protect. And he talked about how he, for himself personally, does not make comment on the dress uh, or, or on the personal nature of another member of the opposite sex. He will comment about something they're wearing, but he will not comment about them specifically. And you think about this, guys. Say you're walking through, you're walking through Walmart and somebody you've never met, but your wife knows him, comes up and just stops and says, hey, I'd seen you in a while. Hey, that dress looks so nice. You're not going to think much of it, right? Maybe a little odd. Most guys don't comment on dresses, but you know, it's, it's benign. It's safe. It's good. But if you see that same guy, your guy, you're walking through Walmart, you don't know him, but your wife's known him for a long time, and uh, you've never met him, and he comes up, and he looks at your wife and says, mm, 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 you look good. You're going to have a few issues, right? 
That's a little uh, exaggerated to some degree. See, it's one thing to say, that dress looks nice. It's another thing to say, you look very, very nice today. There are people that long to hear that from their spouse. You work so hard. You know you are one of the hardest workers in this business. And you, your, your wife must be so proud of you for how hard you work to provide for your family. And that you, there is just something special about you. You know what? That husband may have waited for years to hear that appreciation from his wife. So you've got to guard your lips. Does it mean you don't compliment? No. Does it mean that you don't share things that are encouraging? To, no, it doesn't mean that at all. You just have to be very, very careful about what you say. What's a good, a good thing to keep in mind? Don't say anything that you wouldn't say if your spouse wasn't standing right there. If you'd say it, if I say it, and I don't mind Susie standing there hearing me say it, that's a pretty good idea that I'm in safe territory. But if I'm saying something in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, I would never say this if Susie was here. I better be very, very careful. So you've got to guard your lips. Proverbs here in chapter 4 talks about the lips, verse 24, about being deceitful, about being devious. Guard your eyes, guard your mind, guard your lips. Before guard your ears. Look at verse 20. My son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. I, I, I won't go to another passage about this. I don't know that I could find one easily. Let me just speak kind of practically here for just a moment. Not to, to, not to infer that the Bible is not practical because it is. But how do you guard your ears? Let me, let me just say this. Guys, if your wife who is not prone to typically telling you to be careful about people... I mean, if, if every week she's not got a list of five people for you to be care of, to be careful of, if out of the ordinary, if it's out of the ordinary for her to say, you be careful of that woman over there, you better be, you better just flat listen to what she has to say. If my wife ever tells me because she's not prone to do this, she doesn't have security issues, <laughs> she's curing who she is, and I'm thankful for it. It is not the norm for her to say to me, you need to be careful about so and so. But if she ever says to me, you need to be careful about so and so. You know what? In my wisdom, I need to listen to what she has to say. And ladies, for you, if your husband is not one who is controlling and he's always telling you what you need to do and he's not you know, so jealous, you don't talk to him, you better not be looking at him. You if you see, he's not the kind of guy that always does that. And if it's out of the ordinary for him to say, you need to be careful about that fella that you work with. You need to be careful about that guy over there at the gym. If he spots something and senses something and in his, his intuition he realizes something, you would be wise to listen with your ears and to heed what he says if that's out of the ordinary for him to do that. Why? Because the ones who know men best are other men and the ones who know ladies best are other ladies. They can sense things about one another. I, guys, you know that guy that is just, he, his motives are all wrong. You can spot him from a mile away. Usually you can smell him. Same for the ladies. And you would be wise to guard your ears. What often happens, I've heard this story before, and, and I've experienced it before, is that something will happen, an adulterous encounter will take place, and it was the spouse who told them, do not be with that person, and yet they did not heed it, and their life ended up in ashes as a result because they did not guard their ears. Solomon says, listen, son, to what I'm telling you. And we are wise to do the same. Number five, guard your hands. Guard your hands. We'll show you in just a second as we close in a few moments of one who did not guard most all of these areas we're talking about. How do you guard your hands? Be careful of how you touch members of the opposite sex. The question was asked, how do we affair-proof? How do we adultery-proof our marriage? That's why I'm answering this. Some of you are going to say, you know what? What, what century are you living in, man? You, you live in another century. You know what? If you're careful how you touch members of the opposite sex, you're not ever going to commit adultery with them, correct? 
I mean, how much far into, you know, uh, science and stuff do we have to go to argue that point? Jerry Jenkins, that same author I mentioned earlier, for him, his standard is that if you're not a close relative or a dear friend, he doesn't embrace you. That's his standard. You know what? I tweak it just a little bit. <laughs> if you're not a close relative, <laughs> then you'd be very careful how you touch and how you embrace a member of the opposite sex. I, I see guys from time to time through the years. <laughs> and, uh, man, they're hugging on all the women, right? You met those guys, right? Always hugging on the women. It's funny because it's like, you know, why don't you show some love to the guys? You don't ever hug on the guys that way. Why are you always hugging on all the women? You know, all the women that come in through the door, you're wondering, oh, give me a hug. I hadn't seen you in like three hours. You know, giving all the big hugs, and, you know. And it's not like, the, you know, you know, here's a little hug, you know, high five, you know, and shake hand. It's not that. It's like, oh, give me a big old hug. Well, you know, big old 280-pound sweaty, smelly guy comes in the door. He ain't going to be giving him a hug. He ain't going to be showing no love to him, right? So where's the, where's the equality? It's because what often happens is it's much the same way. What's lacking at home can be found elsewhere. And in a very innocently seeming way, People, if they have no boundaries around the physical aspect of their lives, can find themselves in a place that they do not belong. And because of the progressive nature of sexual sin, when your eyes are not guarded and your mind is not guarded and you're already going places up here between your ears that you ought not go with the person you're not married to, and when you're not having any discretion shown, you're not listening to the input of those who love you, and there are no guardrails or boundaries at all in your life, Physical touch is then explosive in nature. And so you have to guard, figuratively speaking, your hands. Then number six, last, you guard your feet. Proverbs 4.26, watch the path of your feet and all your ways will be established. Listen to what Job says, Job 31 verse 9. He says, if my heart has been enticed by a woman, or if I have lurked at my neighbor's doorway, may my wife grind for another. It's a reference to slavery, the grinding of wheat. May my, if I've done this, may my wife become a slave and let others kneel down over her, for that would be a lustful crime. Moreover, it would be an iniquity punishable by judges. Job, what are you talking about? What would be a, an, an iniquity punishable by judges? What would be a lustful crime if I lurk at my neighbor's door, he says? He said, that is an odd phrase. What does it mean to lurk at my neighbor's door? Uh, Listen to a little excerpt from a book entitled uh, uh, Every Man's Struggle, uh, Every Man's Battle. Listen to what it says. He says, have you lurked at your neighbor's door? It could mean stopping by in the late afternoon, visiting your friend's wife for coffee. Enamored by her wisdom, her care, her sensitivity, you felt sorry for her as you've commiserated together over her insensitive, brutish husband, and you held her as she cried. You were lurking at your neighbor's door. How do you lurk today? Is it possible to even do that? Let me just, my time is just about gone. Let me just say this, and then I'm going to move on. There are ways to lurk at your neighbor's door today, as Job spoke of, as I just read of, that did not exist just a few short years ago. You lurk at your neighbor's door in a way that is, that is improper. Whenever you are in contact with, your, with a, a, a spouse of another person, whether it be through Facebook in a way that is inappropriate, it doesn't mean you can't have Facebook friends, but whenever you go on Facebook, for example, you think, you know, I wonder what so-and-so is doing. It's been a long time. And you know in the back of your mind that there is an interest there. You are lurking at your neighbor's door. 
Does it mean when a member of the opposite sex sends you a friend request, you have to deny? No, it doesn't mean that. You know your heart. You know where your weaknesses are. You know where your vulnerabilities are. You know where you have no business going, that whenever there's someone, there's a way to show good Christian love that is proper, that is properly motivated, and then there's a way to cross that line into areas you don't need to go. You know where that is. Just don't go there. You know the vulnerabilities of your own life and the vulnerabilities of other people's lives. You know what your motives are more often than not. There are places that you can't afford, lines that you cannot afford to cross. Chat rooms, emails, texting, whole nine yards. There are opportunities that exist still today for unfaithfulness of the heart that didn't exist just a few short years ago. You would be shocked and amazed at the number of marriages that suffer because of virtual infidelity. So you've got to guard your feet. Look with me as we begin to close to chapter 7, the book of Proverbs. Chapter 7 captures for us the picture of two people who lacked discretion, who did not guard the various areas of their own bodies, and would pay, with, pay for that in ways they would have never imagined. Proverbs 7, verse 6. He says, For at the window of my house I looked out through my lattice, the writer of Proverbs says, and I saw among the naive, I discerned among the youths, a young man lacking sense, passing through the street near her corner, and he takes the way to her house. He didn't guard his feet. In the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night, and in the darkness, behold, a woman comes to meet him, dressed as a harlot, cunning of heart. She is boisterous and rebellious. Her feet do not remain at home. She is now in the streets, now in the squares, lurks by every corner. And so she seizes him and kisses him. And with a brazen face, she says to him, I was due to offer peace offerings. Interesting that she has spiritual conversation. Today I've paid my vows. Therefore, I've come out to meet you, to seek your presence earnestly, and I found you. I've spread my couch with coverings, with colored linens of Egypt. I've sprinkled my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us drink our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with caresses, no guarding of the hands. For the man is not at home. He, that's a reference to her husband. He's taken a bag of money with him. He's gone on a long journey, and at full moon he will come home. With her many persuasions, she entices him. With her flattering lips, she did not guard her lips. She, did, she, she seduces him. He did not guard his mind. And suddenly he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool until an arrow pierces through his liver as a bird hastens to the snare so he does not know that it will cost him his life. He's lost his heart. So therefore, my son, listen to me and pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many are the victims she has cast down and numerous are all her slain. Her house is the way to Sheol, a reference to the grave, descending to the chambers of death. Adultery-proofing your marriage requires constant guarding of every part of your body. With heads bowed, eyes closed this morning. I understand, as is often the case, that I speak to a variety of people. There are those who are married, or you're single, and you've never given a second thought to this, it's never been an issue. 
The enemy knows your weaknesses. He knows your vulnerabilities. And as he waited for Moses for decades, he will wait as long as it takes for you. You are but one weak choice from adultery. So be guarded. For others, you've made this decision and you've felt the sting and the heartache and the betrayal and how could I have ever done this? And maybe even for you, you made the choice and yet you seem to hurt as much as everyone else. Your cry of your heart is, can God ever use me again? Can God ever forgive me? Can he ever cleanse me? And he can. It starts as we looked at last week with your repentance. Being honest with God, owning what you've done and letting him bring that forgiveness to your life. For others, you've been hurt by adultery. For every single one of us, we serve a God who meets us where we are, who heals, who restores, who forgives. Oh, but he would much rather that we just put the fences in place and the guardrails in place, the boundaries in place, and that we guard every part of our lives, virtually every part of our bodies, so that the marriage that he gives us cannot be attacked by anything. Above all, guarding, guard. The way you do that is through relationship with Christ, life that is yielded, practical steps. For some today, the first step is to give your life to Jesus. You know, he died for you in your place. Knowing your sin even in advance, he died to pay the penalty and the cost. And for you today, where you sit, he'll forgive you of everything you've ever done. If you'll just turn from that sin and invite him to come in and to take over and to forgive you. And so what's the decision that God will have you to make today? Oh, there is one there. So what choice is it for you? What stake will you drive in the ground to say, this is what I do today? Lord, have your way, we pray. Give us the direction and the hearts to follow. For it's in Jesus' name we ask. Amen.